You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS or the Heavyweight Tungsten Super Shot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes so if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot visit federalpremium.com and while you're there don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs tons of great content Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hey guys, before we get kicking on this podcast, be sure to check out Niangua Coffee. Dear friend of ours, company, great products. They've got different roasts that you can try, Blue Springs, Black Water, and the new special edition for spring turkey season, the Fly Down. Uh, amazing coffee, great, great product, great people. Hope you guys can support them at Niangua Coffee. That's N-I-A-N-G-U-A coffee.com. All right, kicking off. I'm I'm just ashamed, truthfully, that we have not really done a a full on one hundred percent like in depth turkey management podcast. Yeah. Uh, like, I, it's, like not it's this a, is not basic. It's a bit stuff. embarrassing. A little bit. Um and I think I mean it's no surprise that whitetail deer draw most of the attention when it comes to our podcast and a lot of podcasts out there right there's just something about antlers but there's a large majority of people that still chase turkeys and and and, you know turkeys are a little bit i don't want to hear it from you guys in minnesota or wisconsin (laughs) it's just overrun you guys got started late okay you guys got turkeys later in life some of you haven't even got into turkey hunting yet but you will you'll catch up 
But uh, the rest of us, the rest of the world, the Southeast, the Midwest, we've been chasing turkeys for a long time. And, and in the last five years, there's really been this, like, everybody's caught in, like, the silent spring where it's just like, what happened? Where'd they all go? And why, why are they not gobbling? There's turkeys around, but I'm just not hearing the dozen in a morning. I'm hearing five or six, or maybe I'm hearing three now. And the bird is still there. But they're but but it but is the numbers it is aren't near as strong. Yeah, they're they're not near as strong, and and there's a lot of different you know reasons and things that we could talk about and have talked about on the podcast. So if you're wondering about those, definitely go back and check out in the middle of, of February where we yeah. we highlight the wild turkey a lot on don't, podcast. Don't just tell us it's just predators. Don't just yeah. tell us it's, it's, it's just clear cutting yeah. or it's burning during nesting season. You know, Mike Cham, Mike Cham, Doctor Mike Chamberlain said it best on our podcast: "Death of a Thousand Cuts." Yep. Um, there's a lot of reasons leading into this, but this podcast is devoted to the actual management of the wild turkey and things you should be doing on your place if you want to promote your farm for wild turkeys. If you're hoping to have more successful turkey hunts in the future, if you're wanting to have successful turkey hunts now, um, these are things you can do, guys. We're not just focused, as many of you know. Um, our consulting company does not just go to a property and say, "Now we do have clients that this is their focus and that's what we do." Or, the, or this is this is let's say a priority. Yeah, but like, but if, if if someone had more turkeys, they're not going to most likely. I've never met a guy who's like, oh, "Do no. not do not do anything that that tries to promote turkeys." I don't want more turkeys. Like it's it's one of those things that my focus is deer, but I would love to see more turkeys on the place too. Yeah. No, we have those pod, those those clients that are like, I want big deer. I want to learn how to kill those big deer, mm-hmm. and and we can certainly help mm-hmm. them with that. But a lot of our clients are, you know, I really like deer. That's my focus. But at the same time, I really want to improve my land for all wildlife that are native here. And so, like you said, if there's more turkeys, they're not complaining. Great client out of southeastern or south central, I believe. Um, Ohio. We've got so many clients in Ohio that it's hard to keep track of where he is specifically, but he's right there in southern Ohio. And uh, one thing that was always that's that's just a great story with him is when I showed up there two years ago. One of his biggest complaints: not many turkeys on the farm. Um, just infested with bush honeysuckle and some other some other invasive species. And uh, his goal was to just overall improve habitat for all wildlife, um, and specifically turkeys and deer. And what we did was we focused on just removing the invasives and trying to add as much diversity on this farm as possible. So thinning some trees, trying to do a little bit of young forest promotion through uh, temporary forest openings, removing a lot of invasives and just trying to get old fields back, early successional habitat. And bam, this year he's just bombarded. He's got turkeys everywhere. He's been seeing a flock of like eight eight hens, one big flock, eight to ten hens, and then four or five long beards in one flock, and then several other loners bouncing around. So that's a fantastic. Great, great success story for him. Yeah. And uh it's just super awesome. Not not they weren't huge in turkey hunting, but now they're starting to get into it because there are some uh, decent population around there. So, um, in the world of declining numbers, it seems like he's one of the guys singing the praises of of habitat restoration and seeing what turkeys do. Yeah, no doubt, and I, and I think that 
I think that's gonna. There, there's a point where where there is now so much, so many people who are kind of coming together and say, "Are you guys seeing what I'm seeing?" So I think that this podcast is going to hit at, at a good time to be for people to be able to share this information with others, and then more habitat be able to be put on the ground. Usually, you know, during deer season, we're talking about all the, the habitat techniques and recommendations, stuff that could improve your success. But we're kind of doing the same thing for, for turkeys right now and really addressing on a property, what are the features, habitat features that you need on a property to not only harvest turkeys successfully, but also increase the population, rear them, make sure that they hatch and then or they nest successfully, and they hatch, and then they can brood and get bigger and continue the cycle. Like it, it, it's not just I got turkeys every spring and you're you're done. Like that doesn't mean that you're going to continue to have that kind of success year after year after year. So I think when we talk about turkey management, breaking down almost like the going into like their diet first, and then. Yep. That will then reflect. Okay, what are those? What are the habitat te- uh, habitat techniques that we need to be able to implement? But then also, what is that? What is that landscape? And what are the plant communities that we have to have present on land on the property to make sure that this happens? And so, I think we all just start kind of there and break our way down into overall turkey management. Yeah. We'll start specifics. out with diets and we'll transition in life cycle and then we'll transition into probably, you know, hunting uh, during that hunting season because there are techniques that Absolutely. it's like, I don't know what one of the most common phrases we hear with turkeys, but I think one of them in the top three is I had turkeys just before season and then they vanished. And there's, there's several things that that usually keys up for us and going, oh, that is this a possibility? Is this a possibility? But that's kind of an ongoing thing. And, and one of them could be a very simple fix that we just uh, experienced actually on a property. Um, but we'll get into that a little later in the podcast. But if we're talking about a turkey's diet, what would you think that uh, would be the, the first thing people would probably say? Well, what is the first thing people say about any type of just wildlife in general? acorns yeah it's all about them acorns yeah and it's like part part of part part of the large expansive diet because we i mean a lot of people do know but i think oftentimes it's 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 misunderstood but they're omnivores like they're eating insects and they are also eating a ton of uh plant material and you know roughly speaking reptiles yeah reptiles little amphibians salamanders frogs worms grubs and and then a ton of the the, you know larger insects spiders grasshoppers all sorts of the creepy crawlies that you know you're swatting away that's that's turkey food and so when you're seeing that on a property or you're hearing the buzzing you're seeing you know all these things as you're walking through the timber or walking through early successional cover, pollinators, plantings, you're seeing all that kind of flitter and fly away. That is, that is good turkey bugging habitat. But 
generally speaking, about 80% of a turkey's diet is going to be in the form of vegetation, whether that's soft mast, hard mast, leaf, um, or seeds, that makes up a large portion of that, that vegetative matter that they're consuming, which is 80% of their diet, where the other 15-ish, 20%, somewhere in that neighborhood, is insect diet based and that's year round yes and and now it, that's, that's important though that's yeah. e- exactly that is extremely important to talk about though because there are times not only within a year for an adult turkey but also within the life cycle of young turkeys that that percentage is drastically flipped on its on its side and so one of the things that you know, as a young turkey, we're talking two or three weeks old, they're feeding and foraging for 90% of the day. When they are awake, they're feeding. 70% of that diet then is all insect-based. High, high, high protein so they can grow as fast and as quickly as possible because they need to be able to fly as fast as possible because they're a horrible joke they're sitting ducks primarily yeah. they're, they're extremely easy to be able to be predated on and everything wants to eat them i mean literally everything it can fly jump hop whatever it's probably going to come if it comes across a poult it's probably going to eat it yeah i don't blame it it's an easy snack yeah not very mobile and not very not very fast but a nice easy high high uh nutritious meal and doesn't fight back no it'll squat there or it will try to and it run doesn't away. have spikes or a terrible taste it's just a little fuzzball <laughs> yeah I, so so of course something's going to eat it but we also have to keep in mind too that you know that's why clutch size the number of eggs per nest is relatively high so that they can be consumed and know that you know predators or or uh poor weather conditions or whatever, they're going to take some. Yeah. No, no matter what, no matter how let's, good your habitat let is. Let me just say something here because I've seen this comment so much lately. Predators eat prey. This isn't anything new that is that we've found in the last five years. It's like, oh, I never thought of that. Predators eat prey. Coyotes eat turkeys. Bobcats eat turkeys. Raccoons eat turkey poults, eat turkey eggs. That's just the way nature works. It's nothing shocking. It shouldn't surprise any of us that a trail cam video captures a coyote I eating was a just, turkey. I was just going to, to bring that up later on as well. That's floating around. It's hot. It's heavy. Thousands and thousands of views and shares. Guys, it literally is a hen sitting on the ground and, and and a predator takes the right path or smells it, whatever. And a very good chance. I would love to question the guy who put that trail camera up that said, what all did you do in placing this trail camera? Were sure. you Did you stumble upon this nest? Did you lean right in? Did you count the eggs? Did you do something, break some twigs off around it so you get a better look at the nest or the hen on the nest? Like, what kind of... What kind of disturbance did you put here? Because there's a very good chance that your scent could have attracted that predator to that spot to then take advantage of that turkey. Yes. So my advice would be, if you find a nest, leave it alone. (laughs) Don't do anything to it. Leave it alone. But regardless of that, 
if if a predator is going to stumble upon that, it's gonna try it. Like it's go like it's just it's sitting there. Yeah. It's not like I'm if I'm looking for a steak dinner and I am walking down the street and someone says, Hey, here's a steak dinner, I'm probably just going to eat it. Like it was just a good chance that they just stumbled upon there. So okay. Back to what they eat. This one's been brewing a while. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, well, I saw that, and I was just thinking the exact same thing. I mean, it's good information, right? Don't get me wrong to to see that. But but again, is a is a hen? Are they highly highly sought after by a coyote? I, I don't I don't think so. They're opportunistic exactly. predators. Uh, they uh, bounce uh, around until they find an easy meal, and every time they find the opportunity. They weigh out the energy used to capture mm-hmm. that or not. That's why you'll see them bounce right next to deer or bounce right next to calves. They'll look at it and go, there's a lot of energy that's burn up. It's not worth it. Just just the other day, I was in Kentucky working with a gentleman, and um, he was showing me a trail camera picture. Four jakes in the field. And this, this field is maybe a tenth of an acre. And here's a coyote just in the, in the, front, the foreground of the picture – Four jakes. I mean, distance-wise between them, it's maybe fifteen yards. Yeah, and and the coyote is looking at the camera. The jakes are further back behind him, and it's not that they're he's not paying them any mind, but he's examining, saying, "Not worth it." So is like, that proof that coyotes don't eat turkeys? There, <laughs> <laughs> proof, facts, facts, guys. Trail cameras told me. Hashtag fake news. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it is all about. You know, the opportunity, risk, and reward situation. They they're extremely good at 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 harvesting game, but not every opportunity is one that they're going to take and and strike on. But a twelve pound, thirteen pound hen sitting idle on a nest that she's trying to protect. Yeah, they're gonna any number of things. A twenty pound boar raccoon's gonna try it too. Yeah, they're mean. But yeah, okay. I'd rather fight a raccoon, or I'd rather fight a coyote than a raccoon. I would. Heck yeah, yeah. those jokers are mean. So, so back to looking at you know the the diet. We've got a lot of vegetative matter, and then we also have um, insect or or you know um, salamanders, reptiles that are also part of the diet of of turkey. But it goes back to deer. When you're looking at deer, and we're evaluating things, and we're saying, okay. What's the level at which deer are browsing on? And it's four or five foot and down. That's it. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at turkey, if we have to have 70 to 75% of its, of its uh, vegetative matter that they're foraging on, a lot of that has to be within reach of a turkey. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like seed yep. heads. And, and yes, they're eating um, uh, you know, uh, soft mass and hard mass that falls from up higher in canopy trees. However, that is not year-round that they are able to have hard mass. That is a, a specific time in which those species uh, or plant species are benefiting and producing forage. So, like, there's got to be adequate amount of vegetative matter within reach, seed heads that they can, and, and plant matter. Diverse seed heads, too. Yes. That not just they can because you need on. to look at uh, a seed head on a plant different species of grasses are going to mature at different times. So if there's a diverse blend, they'll be able to have a bigger window of seed heads available for forage. And and not only 
grasses, but sedges too. Rushes, like all those things have little seed heads and they're picking absolutely anything and everything that can be food and produce energy for them to consume. Like you've, you shot turkeys in the fall. I've shot turkeys in the spring and fall. And, and you know, but every time you open it up, there's not generally just like one single thing that's in there. Never. It's not, I mean, there might be a dominant thing, but you look around like corn. <laughs> yeah. Corn or, <laughs> or when, you know, during acorns are dropping or, or if it's, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, sassafras berries or yeah. dogwood berries, stuff like that. Like when those are dropping, they're feeding on them because other stuff is going to eat them too. Uh-huh. But again, you have to have the diversity of all the different soft mass, hard mass. So, so again, diversity in forages, uh, forest health, forest stands, uh, whether it's tall, young, old, mature, whatever. You have to have all of it for them to be able to forage adequately. But I still can't. Like, I, I, the, I don't want to get past like the the fact of the height of all these forages too. I think you know, the 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 turkey in a lot of areas, and especially in the south southeast, is so timber dominated that we often forget that. Look at look well, at how turkeys are surviving in Texas. Look at how they're surviving in Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and New Mexico. There are so many turkeys in grassland dominated areas just as much as there are in the um the, the hardwood forests. Like yeah. they forage on a ton of stuff. Well, so but, we talked about insects and that being a big part. When you look at those forests of the southeast, we posted a picture about this a while ago. That was a forest in Iowa. What kind of insects are attracted to a, a leaf litter? Uh, very, very few. Not there's, nearly. There's spiders and there's grubs and stuff that happen. Not nearly underneath. the amount that occur with diverse. But insect vegetation. wise, no, like you're not going to really find grasshoppers in the timber. No, and 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 you think about like you can just. I think I think if you've unless you've had your head under a rock by now you probably heard some news outlet talking about the major decline in insects. Um, you know, there's there's lots of different numbers, but like it's like one of the most common numbers I see is 40% of our native insects. 40% of the species of our native insects are on the declining, sharp declining, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty pretty stinking drastic. And, you know, you don't think about, you probably think of insects, you think of mosquitoes, spiders, things you don't like. But when you think about it from the beneficial standpoint and the food standpoint for a lot of birds, that's a major, major problem. Major problem. And uh, so kind of keeping that in mind of the fact that you need a diversity of insects, you need all kinds of different plants to attract insects, um, wide open Leaf litter that's not been burned in years and years and years that doesn't have hardly any type of understory growth isn't attracting many insects or much turkey food at all. No. You get the the most food that you're going to probably see in that forest is when if it is oaks when it starts dropping acorns. Yeah, yeah. If it's a whole forest of hickories, well, better luck somewhere else. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be really really tough on on turkeys. And and then when you look at like truthfully, northern Missouri, southern Iowa, that that band across, or in a lot of uh, Illinois, hickories are dominate the shagbark hickory. Yeah. And and if it's not 
And if the understory could be starting to fill in with the eastern red cedar. It could. Between those two species, what kind of insects are being attracted? What kind of, you know, there's there's cedar berries right. in the fall, but that's not necessarily something that I can say that I've seen turkeys eat a whole lot of. No, no, not at all. Um, Just a quick t- question mm-hmm. to get a little bit unserious, but what's the weirdest thing you found in a turkey crop? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> weirdest? I don't know about weirdest, and I wouldn't I wouldn't say that this is rare, but I just don't see it that much because it's not a, a plant that's Most out unexpected, there. let's say. Unexpected? I can't... I don't Mine know. Was I a, think about I've got that. two things, an insect and then a, and a fruit. Strawberry, wild strawberry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have seen like that. Like a big, yep. beautiful, like, yep. look like you bought it from the store. See, I haven't seen them that big. I've seen the smaller ones. Like that. That's substantial. It was like, gulp. Where did he get this thing? <laughs> yeah, that's And funny. then insect was filled with wireworms. Okay. Huh. Yeah. One, like, like, to a point where it was like, where is all these wireworms at? What kind of infestation of wireworms mm-hmm. are we looking at? Yeah. This is horrible. Wow. Well, and it's funny because, you know, when, when you're... We don't go around just scratching leaves, right? Uh. Like we, Humans don't do that. We, we don't just randomly scratch leaves and, and look to see what's there. But turkeys do this day in and day out. So you find some strange things like, I don't know if I've ever seen that bug before. What is what kind of yeah. grub or worm or centipede, millipede is this that I'm looking at? But it's some weird stuff. But I, I do remember seeing, um, back in Virginia, seeing uh, Allegheny chinkapin. Oh, really? In, in crops before. So that was cool. Um but um, when, so let's just go into into hard mast and what that would look like uh, for turkeys. Obviously, we know that some of the, some of the main ones that most people are going to think of is is your beech nut, um, post oaks, white oaks, red oaks. Yeah, and and that covers a humongous spectrum of of yes, there's different types of whites and reds all across the the country. But but it is that small to medium sized acorn that yeah. is heavily you're not going to see bur oaks being sought after a lot (laughs) no not at all and even a lot of red oak species Mm -hmm. um like the willow oak is fantastic uh but but when you get on up to a northern red oak they get quite a bit larger in size and so foraging uh is not in what i've seen as um sought after let's say what do you think based on here in the midwest what do you think is probably one of the most popular acorns that you see turkeys foraging on there's two two to three that i'm like yeah these these are going to be probably top dollars that is post oak chinkapin and um blackjack yeah and all three tiny little acorns tiny but like when they have them my gosh (laughs) they got them I mean, it's like marbles. And yeah. That is a good size. I mean, yeah, most, most of those are, are marbles. And that's even size. small enough that you see quail eating yes. those. Yeah. Um, I was in um, southern Oklahoma this year, and this was uh, right at the end of January, February. This pond was surrounded by post oaks, and all the, like, it was a humongous acorn crop. And so, obviously, the slopes, like, rained acorns. And they had some heavy rains, and you would walk along the banks of this um, 
big pond and it's got some flooded timber and stuff in it and you're just seeing post oak acorns floating and they are talked about just how many ducks and how many ducks and how many ducks they were seeing on this place and it was in the hundreds every morning I'm like yeah that's that's why they're here so if it's good for a duck and quail can eat it turkeys are absolutely going to be within that range um that they're they're seeking after but they do yeah. when they when they are dropping acorns they are prolific in, yeah. in their um amount that they're doing on on those given years but yeah those are the three that i think of routinely and and when you Dang. go back and look at those the distribution of both post oaks and um not as much chinkapins but a lot there's post oaks all over the place yeah alabama virginia all across the middle and they section eat of the oak, so don't yeah. don't assume that, <clears throat> that because we didn't list it but when it comes to we're talking pref- preference. Prefer, pref- preferred acorns, and and I think it's just you know use the research. We had Dr. Craig Harper on talking about specifically for white-tailed deer, mm-hmm. but even though he and it was studying mainly the uh, productiveness of white oak acorns, um, I'm sure. I mean, I'm going to assume here, but I'm sure the same um, science and research could be done to prove that black oaks chinkapin oaks would do the same thing if they were released from competition um so you thin out some of the maples or you thin out some of the unhealthy oaks that are around it or you thin out the elms that are creeping in or the whatever you know one of the things i think that and i, and I saw this post earlier uh this week and it was it was actually from a different uh another like a management type company i guess you would say they had done a project. Uh-oh. Yeah, and obviously we're not naming any names or anything. Um, done a project and, and, and shared the post. And it was talking about like removing the understory and midstory canopy of um, this. I mean, we're talking bedroom size area and taking a picture of it. And um, the, the benefits that were going to happen and occur there. And, and I just, I, I, I wanted to comment, but I, I, I refrained. But trying to be, I, I guess, uh, polite. Um, but the canopy, Shots fired. the canopy did not change, so there was no more sunlight coming <laughs> yeah. in to spur on that additional regeneration. So that mid-story and low lower canopy that was probably actually benefiting wildlife more was actually yeah. removed. But but the the overhead canopy, the I'm going to say air quote larger trees, not not mature trees, but larger trees, they still remained. Yeah. And so what was what was attempting to be good probably at actually lowered the value or wildlife value in that area because the sunlight just didn't appear. So when you talk about crop tree releasing oaks, yeah, what is one of the things that we see so much that comes back when we open up the sunlight is we see an influx of midstoric type trees yep. or shrubs, spice bush, um uh, sassafras, flowering dogwood, all those have berry-type fruit, soft mass yep. that turkeys are going to consume Yep. at some point and down the road. And even if you open it up enough, you're going to get more in the herbaceous plants, we're gonna, Absolutely. which are going to be flowering plants that are going to attract insects. Way more insects. Also provide great uh, umbrella-type structure for poults, yes. e- even nesting hens. Um, I'll, I'll use an example. Last year uh, on a turkey hunt, uh, with Keith Hammer from Stratton Seed, we were moving along uh, a part of the farm that had had a uh, severe storm move through 
10 years ago. And then we did some TSI, um, trying to release some of the oaks and nice timber that was still standing. So we cut out some of the junker trees and, uh, and oddly enough, there was a big plum thicket kind of right at the Mm -hmm. edge of this transition, more of a, more of a woodland type setting. Um, and there was a big old plum thicket. Another great one to look at too. Yeah. And, uh. Wouldn't you know it, hen flushes up. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was nesting right there at the kind of 10 yards or less from that plum thicket yeah. in an area that had had sunlight. So there was like a couple clumps of some, uh, there were some shru- uh, plums that had moved out away from mm-hmm. the initial clump. There was some buckbrush or corberry, which mm-hmm. is native, but sometimes yep. can be a little bit aggressive, but it's still better than nothing. It's, it's better than nothing. And I, I, you know, when you look at the overhead structure canopy that the buckbrush does provide, and it does have berries as well. Oh, just wait. When I list this next one, you're gonna be like, ah, oh, no wonder. <laughs> but it, it is pretty dang decent from aerial cover, um, from poults and a nesting hen. Yeah. I mean, structure wise, it's it's yeah. a pretty solid plant for turkeys. But- um, the the best the best thing that was here was the uh, the blackberry. Mm. So when you think about blackberry, think about it's gonna f- throw blooms off like crazy. It's gonna attract Fast. a ton of insects. Yep. Um, and then at the same time, it's got thorns, which we all curse and and hate. But at the same time, it's really good escape cover. It doesn't grow in a in a structure that's heavy at the base. It's it's got more of an umbrella type effect. Um, she was right there in the middle of those blackberries. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. of course, you know, I talked about attracting the insects, but then at the same time, it's going to produce a, a fruit. Yep. So you've got the soft mass. Um, we'll talk about that a little later. But, you know, that was like, oh, wouldn't you know it? Look I at mean, all, if, look at if all these species. If I were species. a hen, this is where I would want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's it's funny, but going back into a lot of a lot of similarities, let's say between the way you may approach a and you've heard us talking about approaching habitat management is is the opening up of the canopy, evaluating mass producing trees, cutting the other things around it, utilizing prescribed fire, and letting the the, the native vegetation take it i mean roll with it basically let it just run its course one of the things i think though that we would probably change from let's just say a general if if we're talking trying to to specifically enhance areas for turkeys is is probably increase the burn interval disturbance yes because you can add a couple of different ways if you don't have, I think if you were to sum up, if you were to look at a turkey and just general speaking, you would notice that a lot of healthier populations follow disturbance, yeah. whether it be timber management, whether it be appropriate grazing, whether it be cropping and leaving fallow fields or partial fields um, that are fallowed or prescribed fire, most importantly. Yep. But if you look at those properties that just set neglected timber gets old timber turns closed canopy doesn't get burned fields grow up they get thick rank probably invasives or, uh, or, or they're, grasses they're, yeah or just old, old, pasture. old pastures that are just too tough to navigate and you're like well no wonder if i was mm-hmm. a turkey i wouldn't go there mm-hmm. it's too thick uh you can't carry a brood through that there's no insects anyway um she might nest in it but she's getting the heck out of there as quickly as possible um, as soon as those eggs hatch. 
And so, um, overall, I mean, look at the Southeast. Talk about it on the podcast back in February. We have vast amounts of monoculture pines with little disturbance. And if it is a disturbance, it's a vast, monstrous disturbance, which is better than no disturbance. But you're missing that little uh, meadows of or openings of herbaceous plants, early successional plants. And um, I, I, overall, you just one one thing we, we need will we will bring into this discussion is the spatial distribution of some of these features that we're talking about because more so than than deer, the spatial distribution of some of these really good resources is one hundred percent key because yep. again we're talking about um, birds that. Are at, at, at a certain point in their life, you know, we're talking a couple ounces, and yep. these birds are traveling across the landscape. So distance-wise, they can move greater distances, but like Michael Chamberlain said, a moving brood is a dead brood. We don't want them to we, move like that. We don't want them to ha- be forced to be going from a nest site and traveling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards to be able to get to somewhere where they can begin to feed and feed adequately. So having great brooding cover and nesting cover in close proximity. And a lot of times those two can overlap. Like you can have great insect um, rearing opportunities or insect um, attractive areas, bugging areas. And that could also be pretty dang good nesting cover too. If we, if, if it's managed appropriately. And so kill two birds with one stone in a given area. Well, I, th- I think about going back to a podcast that uh, Brother and I did called Fragmenting the Farm, when it was focused specifically on white-tailed deer and how to shrink home ranges mm-hmm. and core areas of white-tailed deer because we increase the amount of um, needs that they have in a given area. So basically, we took a 40-acre grid across the farm, and we say, within this 40-acre grid, we need good cover, we need good, high-quality food, not just one type of cover. We need cover for fall. We need cover for winter. We need cover for summer. The same is true with turkeys. We need to look at it from a standpoint of going, okay, we need nesting cover here and not just one place on the farm. If you have 200 acres, you shouldn't just say, here's 10 acres. This is my nesting area. It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. We need nesting cover throughout the farm, scattered across the farm. You need it on every 40-acre section. Yes, and you need brood rearing habitat mm-hmm. across the farm talking specifically this early successional plant communities of herbaceous flowering plants that can attract insects but still provide good uh decent amount of cover to avoid predators um and and guys this is a when we're saying early successional plant communities that shouldn't be a new buzzword for you because it's talked about so much with deer that we're trying to promote it for deer anyway. But this is benefiting turkeys just as much and quail if you have them. Yeah, and, and I think that to, to go back to talking about the differences in, in the uh, the burn cycles or the disturbance, if yeah. I'm solely focused on deer and I'm in the middle portion of the country latitude-wise, burn rotation in, in a lot of different habitat types, truthfully, you could probably go, I would say, on average, most places or most habitat types, five years, and it would be really, really, five or six years in some places, really ideal for deer. Like, that, if that is your own, your sole focus. Yeah. For, from a cover standpoint, from herbaceous, woody, all that stuff, 
five or six years would be good. But if I'm talking turkeys, I'm talking two, three years yeah. from a burning rotation, from burning fields, old fields, early successional habitat, to also timber because you have to have good cover across the board. That that 12 to 24 inches of cover throughout the spring as things are growing is super critical critical for nesting and brood rearing success. That's the range for turkeys that you yeah. really need to have. And when we're talking about weeds, we talk about weeds from, from a deer management perspective. Weeds for turkeys are so, so important, again, from the, the attraction of insects, but the cover. Yeah. You think of ragweed when it's a foot tall. Oh, man. It's incredible. It's like the mayor's tail. If they were to get oh. trophies for like... Like this is the trophy, you know how like there's all the, around the Emmy or whatever, and it's yeah. just like they have this thing. If you're going to give trophy for for habitat, it's like man, ragweed be a pretty good one to give out. She's a top contender because right it's there. like here's a wonderful plant. It's great structure, can be great height, all mm-hmm. kinds of benefit. Tons um, of benefit. You know, so you're talking prescribed fire. Might as well talk legalized baiting for turkeys. Oh, we're going to talk prescribed fire because yeah. It is so powerful and so attractive and so yeah. beneficial to wild turkeys that, um, you know, fire scares a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And when we're you're talking just in about a, a two to three year burn cycle for for turkeys, um, and that's just like if you have let's just picture a seventy five acre field, you're going to burn that over the course of three years. So you section it off into thirds and you burn that over the course of three years. But if that scares you, and this would be even more beneficial. If it scares you to burn a, a third of 75 acres, chop it into s- six different parcels oh. and burn them in, in, in checkerboard. It's more, I would rather do that. It's more work from a fire line standpoint. But, but it's a it's lot more contained bent. area, like yeah. where you're just burning a small – it's a small fire. And, and the other thing is, too, if, that, you're, if you are doing a two- and three-year burn rotation, your fuel load is really minimal. Yeah. You're not going six, seven years with all this duff and thatch and just build up and everything. Think about those We're, disc lines if yeah. you put them in. You want to talk about some bare ground, great. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So much disturbance that is occurring with your disc line, your burning. You section it off where you've got six different units within a 75-acre old field. Fellas, you got some killer Killer uh, habitat that's happening. I want to talk about like the the um, cedars. uh, 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 (laughs) The um, uh, expectation of a burn, though, too, from from a success standpoint. If if you're burning and you're getting sixty plus percent of a unit, let's say burned, I'm calling that a success. It does not have to be a hundred percent. Probably better anyway. Yeah, because you now have diversity within that unit of different heights, patches, you know, nesting habitat. They can walk right out into bare ground along a fire break or walk out where it's super heavy weeds after fire has gone through a, a certain area. So don't you don't have to have 100% fuel consumption in, in a burn unit for it to be wildly beneficial. Yeah. And I think that expectation of like, oh, I, I cut my whole lawn, so I might as well burn this whole unit. Yeah. It's not like that in wildlife uh, management, and that takes some getting used especially to. Especially if you have diverse plant communities. Yeah. Because you may have some bramble patches uh, that d- just don't carry a fire through it, or mm-hmm. you may have some areas that's that's more f- uh, more forbs and there's not as much fuel load there, so it just kind of tr- trickles through it and goes out. And then you may have areas that are really thick native grasses, 
and you're just going to rip a fire through it. Yep. And and then if you have an area that's acres and acres of thick native grasses, disc it. you disc it or you burn it during the growing season. Yep. And even then when you rip a fire through it during the growing season, you're trying to catch it during a drought. You're trying to catch it where you can burn, consume a lot of it. But even a growing season fire is going to be more like a, a patchy type fire yeah. anyway. Which is, again, totally fine. But, you know, one of, one of the things that we, we haven't talked about a lot, we, we've gone from big mature trees from a mass production standpoint to the grasses, the, the shrubs, the sedges, the insect life that's on the ground, and then the grubs and worms and everything. But we got to go back to that transitional area really quick. And we're talking about shrubs because... The fruit-bearing potentials is huge. We, we, we did cover um, dogwoods and plums and sassafras and all the other species, but from a structure standpoint. Yeah. I'm going to a pult 14, 20 days or so, depending on how quickly they've grown and matured. Starting to learn to fly. They're starting to learn to fly. Yeah. Think about a shrub as yeah. like that intermediate roost between getting up to... Uh, uh, if all you have is really big mature trees, they're on the ground for a lot longer. Yeah. Think of shrubs. That those cottonwood limbs are a long ways up there. Absolutely, but but that great <clears throat> dogwood patch over there is allowing that that poult to be able to get up five foot above the ground, and yeah. and that energy it takes to do that, and and skill level also is way less. So shrubs in this landscape too also play a really incredible role for that to get them up off the ground at night yeah. and that saves the hen though too because if if they can't fly and get in a tree she's squatting on the ground one more night yeah one more chance yeah for them coyotes to get them <laughs> yeah and and not only that you know you talk about you talk about shrubs i mean we might as well talk about young forests as well mm-hmm. um and and so the shrubs where where do shrubs occur we can get them in our old fields we can get them in our grasslands we can get them at the edge of our food plots but Best, I mean, think about all your field edges, your transition areas from your crop field, your pasture, your food plot to the timber. There's a great opportunity to do some edge feathering, do some um, cutting these trees, plant some shrubs to create that second, third layer of a of an edge transition where you can have areas that, you know, if it's not just straight shrubs, which it shouldn't be just straight shrubs, you have some mixes mm-hmm. of forbs and grasses, and now you have better nesting area. But at the same time, if it's, if let's say we're looking at American plum or black hall or any of these shrubs that are producing a, a bunch of flowers, they're attracting insects, which are just right there for that mama hen to be eating insects while she's sitting on a nest or right there around her nest. Definitely. And, and, <clears throat> That's that's a, a fantastic illustration of okay. I need to, uh, you guys are telling me right now. Quick recap: I need to have healthy producing trees, and we know that not all mass producing trees are created equal. There's good yeah. producers, so let's find those. Let's manage for those. Cut a lot of stuff around them. Let's be burning, but let's let's decrease our uh, or or increase our. Um, no, I guess we would be decreasing the interval between fires. Um, so we're doing two three year window. And then we got to have grasses, shrubs, forbs, heavy forbs at a managed height yep. and not let them be too rank. So, again, we're, we're burning those often and breaking up and segmenting and disking the bare ground you brought in is, is fantastic. But someone's going to be like, 
guys, you didn't talk about food plots. So we kind of have to talk about some food plot varieties that would be a great option for turkeys. And yeah. and if we were if of we course. were planting them, what would those species be? And then what is the role that those species do play? And, I, and we haven't chatted about this. The conversation Seth and I had a little bit last week, but I know that you'll be like, yeah, that. That definitely, you always kind of see this this trend, but but from what what's your top like food plot variety or turkeys. blend that you're like turkeys? They just absolutely hammer. He's got to have probably alfalfa or red clover or white clover. Um, the clover alfalfa mix is just stupid. dynamite. It's just stupid. And that, and that is from from not only a height standpoint, but from an insect attracting standpoint from you know how quickly, I mean, I was on a walk this night, tonight with, with uh, Emily, and we're walking around, clover's headed out. We've got yeah. bugs circling, pollinating, already happening. It mm-hmm. doesn't take long for alfalfa in the spring to start blooming and getting there as well and start to bring in all these insects. Uh, and I think, this. let's talk a little bit about comparison between a crop, a crop alfalfa field, something yes. that's planted. For commercial. For commercial. commercial. Versus a food plot of um, clover mm-hmm. when you're comparing. If if I were to ask you, would you rather have a four-acre field, if, if our goal is specifically turkeys, would you rather have a four-acre field of commercial alfalfa mm-hmm. or a four-acre field of the diverse mix of clover, alfalfa, chicory, um, think about it from I, – I don't want to give away too much and, and force you into answering the way I would want to, but I think a lot diverse. of times guys would say – well, I'm thinking about it from a standpoint of and – and I'm getting to a point with, when it comes to kind of breaking up these and not getting the vast acres of the same thing. But when you look at clover, especially a healthy stand of clover and alfalfa and chicory, it's, it's a little too thick for a little ch- – Turkey for, for pole to be pulse, bouncing yes. around through. So if you have a 10-acre field of that, they're most likely going to be working the fringes. Very edges. But if you look at a commercial crop of alfalfa, you know it may get a little thick about the time they cut it. Mm-hmm. And then it turns short, and then it starts growing a lot quicker, but and you very still have leaves. you still probably planted with a drill, so there's little rows in between mm-hmm. plants, so they can maneuver through on bare ground. So it's it shows you know a lot of times how many turkey hunters have driven by an alfalfa field and rubbernecked it over to go, oh, there's got to be a turkey around here. There's a reason for that, and I think that when you look at alfalfa from that standpoint, it's it's really beneficial. But overall, obviously, we want as much diversity and ground covered as possible, but don't get carried away with your clover, alfalfa, chicory mixes and go 10 acres because it's probably too thick out in the middle for them to really use and, it. And that goes, that goes right back into what we're talking about with usable space. If we're talking of a scale of 10 acres yeah, and you want to increase usable space, yeah, after a cutting – those burrs, those broods, are going to be further. Those poults are going to be further out into a field because they can navigate it way better. Yeah. But then, but then, but two, then they're really at risk for predation too. Absolutely. So there's this balance back and forth. So ideally, in that situation, you know, yeah, we'd like to break up the field, but then continue to disturb it and have it mowed, have it cropped. Um, yep. But there's there's so many different ways to to, to look at them, but but from 
from a species standpoint or variety standpoint, without a doubt, clover and alfalfa are, are probably some of the top tier deals when you're looking at production of food, usability, strut zones, a lot of attraction bugging. throughout the year, bugging. Um, and, and typically the other thing too, that, that, that is a, a, I think why we see a lot of use from turkeys and, and during the uh, spring and summer months from turkeys is not only the bugs and the, and the forage, but typically you find clover in the smaller fields. So oh, yeah. when a hen does bring a brood there from the bugging aspect, hopefully you've either edge feathered what, and there's cover close by yeah. and they can get out of the field or you have a, out, a road right by. next to it. So it's a real short vegetation mm-hmm. that they can bounce along on and chase a bug right at the edge. Or or there's gravel along the, the road that they're traveling. They can sit there and pick gravel for um, their, their gizzard. So yeah. Or, you know, at the same time, too, you could do a, a light disc line around the edge. Just just expose it a little bit. Super, expose super the soil. Easy. And I think there's – overall, I don't know. I'm going to base an assumption here, but – for you guys that are wondering about turkey, what what happened to the turkeys? Is just a lack of disturbance. Let's use yeah. a little bit of an analogy or a firsthand experience on a on a hunt we were in Oklahoma. Like turkeys there mm-hmm. a lot during mm-hmm. the during the winter, during the early spring, and all of a sudden they start moving away, and we're not seeing them, and landowners not seeing them. It's, you look at the amount of vegetative growth that occurred during that window of when they were there to versus when we were there, and there weren't that many birds. Is Fields grow up. Yeah, it's, quickly, it's hard for a, a hen. She when she's going to find a nest and it's like looking around trying to find that short vegetation. Toms are looking to strut. They're not going to strut in something that's twenty four inches tall. They're going to go and find that short pasture. And that pasture's got a whole bunch of cattle manure that's attracted a whole lot of insects and flies and all kinds of other stuff. And so, you know, there's probably some overgrazing or overtrampling areas that have forbs growing that are also attracting insects and. And there you go. There, that's yep. where they're at. Yep. And uh, so we're just trying to replicate that short vegetation to where they can strut, but also where there's disturbance. So there's some exposed ground. There's some more forbs or some gravel. All the things that a turkey eats and and needs to to maintain itself. Um, but but one of the things that, that Seth and I were talking about is the it, it, it seems from a from a late season let's say a February, March time frame. And that, that is also when it, a lot of the, the pecking order, the, the dominance, the mm-hmm. structuring of the, the hierarchy, I guess, and, and coming into spring is happening and occurring. Um, birds are, are typically centered around, roosted around great late season forage. Grain fields can be fantastic to house birds and, and they can go out there, display their dominance, Figure out the pecking order. It's a great food source. The birds that uh, Seth killed at his farm, a lot of them had a lot of soybeans left over, you know, in their in their yeah. crop, and that forage is a huge attraction for that time frame. But it carries really well into the spring because now those fields that had a grain, if the corn has been either harvested, knocked over, brush hogged, or there's not too much density of, of bean stubble. Birds can get out there yeah. and do their thing. And there's winter annuals that have they're yeah. some of the first things to pop, first greenery to pop in existing ag fields. And that's what they're in there 
eating and yeah. and, 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 and they're also pretty quickly they're going to be planting that exactly disturbing it again there's gonna be yeah. bare dirt there's gonna be seed there there's gonna be more insects coming in there and so yes you have a lot of disturbances in and around crop fields but but one of the best things that you can do is to let it go fallow yeah. For for one one portion of the yeah. season, or or just you know, I'm going to plant that grain crop every other year, and then I'm going to let it go idle for the spring, and then plant my my fall food plot in it and yeah. prep it for the next year. But yeah. like that that structure that comes back when you have some corn stubble, some bean stubble, and then ragweed. your your ragweed pops oh. up. I mean, you don't get any better than that from a brood rearing standpoint. And the beauty of that is, you don't do a dang thing. It saves you money you don't you don't have to do anything but 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 let nature run its course and and be the structure and the height and the and the density of the cover to and i mean we're talking that is prime brood rearing habitat yeah and you don't do anything no save money it's a lazy it's like the lazy man approach to get huge benefits it's like if i've got an eight acre field i'm going to plant half this year and half the 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 other half the next year during that time, you think that you're losing a half because you're you're not planting it. You have to plant, so but, you, but your gain is so much better. Probably incre- improves your overall deer usage because yes. they feel more comfortable. They have those native forbs that they can browse on too. And uh, well, and and truthfully, that that window of of when you actually planted. So so let's let's just take that for example. If if you got a field ten acres and you decide to to plant a grain crop in the spring, you've sprayed it, so you've killed yeah. out any of the the growing vegetation that would have been there, that would have been food for for turkeys and for deer. But then you left the other half. That other half is growing and producing way more food and cover for deer to forage on as antlers are growing. Either does are are in the last trimester or they're lactating. Turkeys are out there foraging. They got poults before that crop really is up and, and germinated, established, and can really handle browse pressure. Yeah. You've got all that happening right over here in the five acres that you, again, did not do anything with. Yeah. You didn't do anything with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it doesn't get any easier or simpler than that, but without understanding what's happening in the whitetail world, or I mean, the, the turkey world at that time frame, you might th- say, I'm taking the lazy approach, but in reality, knowing what's happening, knowing what's going to be there, you're you're gaining so much. And we're talking about how wonderful that is, that fallow field. Mm-hmm. But also, you don't want all your fields to look like that. Correct, correct. You want to have a diversity of your fields, some of them being short, some of them being like that. Um, a diversity of, you know, you've got perennial clovers. Um, and then you've got some... What would be wonderful is you've got some old fields that have been burned mm-hmm. to where you've got these really short areas for strutting, for, and then you've got some areas that were burned last year, so a little bit taller vegetation. Adjacent to. Adjacent eh, to it, eh, so you eh. probably have some better bugging, some more flowering plants. Spatial distance. And then yep. adjacent to that is a, a f- part of a field that was burned three years ago, which is great for nesting. So you're, so you're saying we've got diversity all within one area for turkeys? Yeah. Huh, that's funny. Yeah. Okay. And diversity so. wins again, right? Yeah. Now, uh, maybe it's important to, to talk about, because I think when we, sometimes when we say diversity, you may think, oh yeah, grasses, forbs, trees, shrubs, whatever. But diversity goes, okay, diversity for all of flora, fauna, just mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. we want as much of that as possible. 
But it also goes to, uh, let's just take a white oak tree, diversity of a white oak tree. How does that happen? Different growth rates, different stages of growth for white oak. So we have young um, white oak trees, we've got mid-story white oak trees, and we've got big mature ones. Mm-hmm. Same thing with with uh, grasses. We've got diversity of grass species. So we've got little blue stem. Mm-hmm. Well, warm and cool season. Yeah, warm and cool season. Um, little blue stem that was burned one year ago. Little blue stem that was burned two years ago. Mm-hmm. Little blue stem that was burned three years ago. Yep. Um, and and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And and that's the kind of diversity we want to talk about. Not only then. We've got little blue stem that's been burned at three different stages, but we've got it f- here on this 40-acre chunk or this 20-acre unit. And we're, we've not, got we're not it saying over there. All, all 40 acres or 20 acres. It's just one of the species that's occurring there. Yeah. And, and I think it's so freaking easy for people to drive by a place that looks like abandoned or the farmer didn't do that field that year, or I haven't been in there and I didn't disturb he's a it last farmer. year. farmer. Yeah, or he's letting that place grow up to junk. He's he's letting that place go go by the wayside. Yeah, well, it's producing game. I yeah. I I can probably promise you that, unless it's just infested with, let's say, cerisa or <laughs> yeah, something like that. Bad. It's 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 probably doing a really good job of of improving turkey numbers since we're talking about it today but you know one of the other other two things from and this goes into behavior that then will resort into a a habitat or a plant community discussion that's necessary to have on a property that we want to keep in mind when managing number one loafing and loafing cover turkeys loaf a lot you think about the summer days yeah, there's that is a long stinking day. Almost any, I think, if you look at a t- turkey, it doesn't matter what month you look at it. There's at some point during the day, there's a loafing period. There's a loafing period, and and so from from a summertime standpoint, what is that going to look like? They're probably in a lower line area that is probably or a better canopy, north facing slope, yep, where it's cooler. They're they're regulating their body temperature. They're down there. They're in there preening. Um, cleaning themselves, just loafing. You know, it, it almost sometimes when you come across turkeys who are loafing, it almost looks like they're semi-half strutting, but their feathers are kind of puffed or out asleep. a little bit. Or asleep. They are the heads tucked on their shoulder-like or on their wing. But their feathers are kind of out. They're, they're repositioning feathers. They're preening. They're cleaning. So loafing cover is really important to have. Pig and ticks. Yeah. <laughs> loafing cover is important to have in closer proximity to some of these areas that they're going to be feeding a lot in. So let's say you've got these open fields that have lots of bugs, lots of vegetation um, that's super palatable for turkeys. You've got to have maybe a cooler, lower-lying area close by that you might yeah. be finding them in during the summer months. But in the in the winter months, they're going to be doing the same thing in the sun. Yeah. But they're just going to be loafing and pretty idle, but they need to be... In the sun, out of the wind. Out of the... Exactly. And I think that's important. You know, if if you were to just say, how do you manage your hardwoods for turkeys? Once again, trying to get some diversity in there. Closed canopy hardwoods aren't all bad if we're looking at okay we need some loafing mm-hmm. areas okay mm-hmm. in the summer we're going to look for north facing slopes that are kind of that i mean you i i immediately picture it in my head a north facing slope giant oaks 
pretty yeah. open underneath. Yeah. Some ferns. And just older, just dead. leaf litter where they yep. can just move around in there and chase in hard mass, yep. which is great. But mm-hmm. you don't want your whole property like that because hey, it's no. beneficial during a small window. Yep. But it's important to have that if, if sure. you're in an area that can have that. Then you look at south-facing slopes and you're like, I want to have scattered woodland savanna-like setting if, if that's my area. And we're talking specifically Ozarks to where I've cut the trees or I've burned up the trees that don't need to be on that. That's not their site to thrive, specifically elms or maples. Yep. And now I'm just letting my acorns not have a lot of competition. They're just, or my oak trees and they're just raining hard mass. Uh, but then I have a mix of grasses and forbs and different things. West slope would be very similar to the south slope, and east slope would be very similar to the north slope, um, yeah. to where it's just a diversity of composition because of the diversity of elevation and slope. Definitely, definitely. And but and within all those, you want some young forest too. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the mm-hmm. north slope, you'd still want to have a pocket that you've made a temporary forest opening to where there's another potential for a hen to lay a nest. Yep. Um, and then she can get out to where there's forbs somewhere else or there's insects some other place, but give her the opportunity to nest in something like that rather than just be a vast 50 acre North slope or 50 acre chunk of hardwoods, this wide open canopy. I, I think that we, we, we underestimate turkeys. They, they have large ranges or they have the potential to have very large ranges when habitat quality is poor. Yeah. But let's not open. make them do that. No, you can, you can, you can have, a lot of the resources that turkeys need on 40 acres. And if you do, you're going to have turkeys a lot. You're going to see those turkeys a lot because you have everything that they need. They don't, they, again, opportunity cost of, of what it takes to be able to travel to all yeah. these wide resources. If they don't have to travel, they're probably not going to. Yeah. Like the, sometimes fall ranges, they- yes, they're, 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 maybe, maybe you've got a slope that's got great beach nuts on it and they're, they, they dropped this year, and turkeys are going to go there. Yeah. They know that. Yeah. But they're probably going to come back. You know, it's it's, it's a time thing. Of maybe you, you, you can't, you don't have beach think of it on your, like your property. When you so. think of the people living, the farmers live in rural America, you drive through, and you're like, where do these people go? They have a big range. Those people, mm-hmm. if they don't grow everything and produce everything on that farm they need. Because right. they have to go to town to get their groceries. Yep. So they have a huge range. Turkey's a lot like that where they have to go to town to get their groceries. Mm-hmm. But if they can have that on the farm, that farmer's putting out a garden and he's doing everything he can to be self-sustaining, he doesn't have a huge range because everything he needs is right there. Mm-hmm. Turkey's yeah. the same way. We can do that. We just can't focus on a monoculture or yeah. keying in on this. One thing is great, and I want the whole place to have this. I want the whole place to have a lot of great things. Yeah, definitely. And the last behavior that we're going to talk about that needs to be there, and it is, again, a direct correlation to a, to a I wouldn't say it's a habitat uh, feature that needs to be on the property, but dusting. Yeah. Turkeys dust all the time, yeah. and they need to be able to clean their feathers, get the mites out of their feathers, and make sure their feathers are arranged in an appropriate manner. One, for just um, health of the animal, but also you know, making sure water's not getting in and getting to their skin, getting them cold. But how they do you dust get, all the time? How do you get dusting on a on a piece of ground? Hmm. Disturbance. Bare dirt. Yeah, so we get fire. That's yep. one way. Man, we, we burned we have, up 
place and there's a lot of dusting sites yep. and specifically in areas where there were logs that burned up that were laying on the ground lots of ash yes soot and then so we got lots of dust that way another way is through cattle grazing mm-hmm. another way is through dormant season disking or mm-hmm. disking in fire lines or uh, depending on where you're at in the country if you don't have a lot of rock on your gravel roads you just have dusty roads mm-hmm. it's probably happening right there on your on your yep. gravel roads on Absolutely. your two tracks yep and so there's a lot of different ways. And so fallow fields as well. Fallow fields, the edges along fallow fields. A lot of times you'll see a dusting site kind of like right there on the edge of the sun and the edge of the shade. And they're just sitting there enjoying it and, and just throwing dust all over them. But yeah, buffer off the field edge some. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's your two track around there or you've just you did the dormant season disking and you're letting everything interior that be a food plot or that be a crop field. It will be utilized as a dusting site. It will happen, and that's necessary. If you have turkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, they've done all the rest, and they have turkeys, or they're they're trying to get turkeys on their place. And if they have them, they just want more because um, there is a downward trend. But guys, hopefully this this was a great reminder of what it takes to have turkeys on a property. Turkeys, just like deer need diversity the diversity they require it for all their life cycles for their behavior for their diets for for you know what we didn't talk about what and i think roost we made trees it, roost trees we you gotta have trees we, well we gotta have them horizontal limbs so adam and i were gonna start a, a new service actually and and we're gonna go to farms and we're gonna make sure oh c- like create buck beds too. yeah we, we we're gonna we're gonna go into the canopy with their tree climbing saddles and make sure we're gonna trim some limbs and so that they're horizontal limbs so the turkeys can roost. You know, yeah, I I would say something about roost trees that if you can make buck beds, you can that, make roost trees. Yeah, that's, right. that's what I'm saying. That's what that's the point I'm getting across here. It, chances are, if you look at a tree and you say, "Man, look at those monster limbs," there's got to be turkeys roost. There's a good chance turkeys don't roost on limbs you think they roost on. Mm-hmm. It's um, very true. It's it's amazing somehow the the tiny little limbs that they they, will, they fly up through the monster tree to go up on the tiny limbs yeah. so they have a limb that their foot can they're, can wrap they're like around knuckles all the way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it is funny. It is it's like when you funny. shot blackbirds when you were a kid on wires, telephone wires, and they would swing around because their yeah. foot was clamped on. Uh-huh. Same thing with you know, it is they're clamping on. Yeah, uh, turkeys. You know, turkey management is something I, you don't hear a lot of guys talking. No. I, I'm sure there's going to be more and more talks about turkey management sure. in the future as as numbers start beginning to decline, or not beginning, but continue to decline. More and more people are going to be talking about turkey management. And, fellas, you're hearing it from us right here that I hope this day does not come. But if if we look into our little ball, our crystal ball, and we look ahead – and we follow this trend that we're already on, there is going to come a day that the people who have turkeys are the people doing habitat management, the people that have done the disturbance, added the diversity, and are ensuring that they have a healthy ecosystem on their farm. Yep. That'll be the ones who get the turkeys. And it, it, you can look back at the end of your life. Hopefully you, you found more uh, important things, family your relationship with Christ and, uh, and, and down that list is habitat management, but it is something we all love. So we, we make a a great living at, at, at doing this podcast, but 
hopefully when you look back, you can realize that you were, you can say that you were part of the solution and not part of the problem. Um, and when it comes to land management, there are definitely a lot of problems and a lot of, and some solutions. And when we're talking about turkeys, you know what the thing about turkey management that I love is there's not a whole lot of fats. There's, <laughs> there's not. A, we didn't talk about hinge counting for no. turkeys. That's what we, I'm didn't, saying, man. we didn't talk about. We just created one. Some wonderful grass or yeah. oh, some. Well, we didn't even talk grass. about. We didn't even talk about chufa or yellow nut sedge. <laughs> Son of a, that's shh, the that's shh, the only shh, silver bullet. It's right? not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that's yeah. So, guys, you know, hopefully you're encouraged. And and okay, if if you're like, what can I do for turkeys? That's great for deer. <laughs> print this off, take it. What can I do for, for quail? You know, there's a few little tweaks, but for the most part, if you were just like, I want to maximize my, my property for wildlife, like I said, diversity, look at how you can add diversity, not only in, in species, but growth rates and growth stages and, um, your disturbance cycles and, and everything, because that's going to replicate nature the best, the best way we know how. That's Matt, you exactly got exactly right. Uh, I, I, I just look at this. And it's like if somebody graduated college or high school, it's like, how can I be the best wildlife manager or land manager I can be? And it's just like, here, here's a template. And it's just like, learn the species on your place, learn the species that are native and the ones that are non-native and invasive, remove these, promote these, add uh, double the list of what you found um, of, of native species, double that list. So you add more diversity, um, find the missing link and then disturb it with nature's natural cycles mm -hmm. through fire or grazing. And, and if you do that, you're going to be pretty good. Yeah. You'll be better than the rest. And don't. <laughs> what? I was going to say, I'm scared. don't watch outdoor television to tell you how oh, to yeah. do it because yeah. they're probably going to send you down a fad line. That's probably right. That's probably right. Well, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed Whoops. the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned something about turkey management and from, from a plant community standpoint because there is a direct correlation between diverse plant communities and actually having turkeys and watching turkey populations grow on a property that you're managing and if you have inform or questions about managing a property uh, specifically for turkeys or, or just in general land management um, please feel free to reach out to us at uh, landlegacy.tv click on the consulting tab send in an inquiry they'll go to us and we'll be sure to get with you um, but best of wishes as we're getting into um, another habitat kind of management season here food plots are coming up and uh, wait, do they qualify as habitat? Yeah, see, yeah, we'll, we'll, throw, we'll throw them in there. Close, we'll throw them in there. And um, so, guys, appreciate you listening. Hope you learned something about turkeys and hit the share button with this podcast. We'd love to see it out there on social media and people talking turkey management just as much as they do deer management. So, appreciate you, appreciate you guys listening. And I guess we'll catch you next week. Yeah.